Revelation chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast because it was, and is not, and is to come. This calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, and the other is not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was, and is not, and is, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven. And it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful." And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages and the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They'll make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire for God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Now, after hearing that, uh, you may agree with me that Revelation chapter 17 is probably one of the most confusing chapters of the whole, of the whole what is in, in the whole a confusing book. Um, but I'm going to make one statement that I hope might help us to get it. The enemy of my enemy is not my friend. All right? The enemy of my enemy is not my friend. 
Uh, but unfortunately, now I've told you this, you're going to have to wait until not only next week, but next time I preach, which will be the second Sunday in August, um, until I explain that. Because today, I think we need to spend today setting the scene. So far in the book of Revelations, we've encountered little brief mentions of Babylon. And, we've, and about the fall of Babylon, but we haven't really talked about it at all. And so today we're going to be setting the scene. In chapter 17, there are two key characters, and they're both evil. And today we're going to learn about the first key character. This character is very active in our world today, and she is called the Great Prostitute. And as we read on, we discover that this alluring woman in her expensive designer clothes and blinged out with all sorts of gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of the abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality, this woman actually represents a city, the great city, Babylon. So what is this great city, Babylon? Well, let me take you to the region of Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia was a historical region situated in the Tigris-Euphrates river system. Today, it roughly corresponds to most of Iraq and Kuwait, uh, the eastern parts of Syria, southeastern Turkey, and it sort of skirts the Turkish-Syrian borders and the, and the Iran-Iraq border. And Mesopotamia, became a very wealthy and a very developed land. Its technology was ahead of its time. Uh, irrigated agriculture was the great source of its produce, much like St George here, isn't it? Um, but trade, world trade, was the great source of its income. And Mesopotamia was a, the land where urbanisation was first developed. It's where archaeologists believe that people first began to live in organised civilization. Mesopotamia was one, had had a lot of firsts. It was one of the first regions of the world where writing was invented. Uh, they were big in mathematics. Their mathematics system was on a sexagesimal number system, right? So we have a base 10, they had a base 6 or base 60 system, um, so that means we, get, we go from 0 to 9 before we have to add another digit. H have you ever wondered why we have 60 minutes in, a, in an hour, uh, 24 hours in a day, 360 degrees in a circle? Well, we have the Mesopotamians to thank for this because they were the ones who worked in this number system. They were also great astronomers. When we read in the Christmas story about the wise men coming from the east, these magi uh, very likely came from Mesopotamia, right? So it was a very organised and a very educated region. It, it was where civilization itself began. Now, when I was doing a bit of research on this in pre 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 preparing for today, um, I read an article on, on archaeology from The Guardian and it said, if Mesopotamia is the cradle of urban civilization, Babylon is its firstborn child. All right? Babylon was the first and the major city. It was the center of power and influence and affluence. It was the center of knowledge and commerce. The Babylonians, they were the ones who developed the earliest system of commercial banking. And yet, biblically... Babylon's not so hot, 
right? Babylon is not admired for all of its greatness. Biblically, Babylon is despised. It's always been an image of pride, wealth, status, self-sufficiency. It has a striving to put oneself in the place of God. Babylon is a place of idolatry and leader worship. And Babylon represents all of the very worst products of man in his self-made civilization. Greed. Narcissism. Uh, By the way, if you don't know what narcissism means, it's a feeling of self-importance and self-entitlement. And it makes you someone who will walk over others just because you can. Uh, It also represented hedonism. Hedonism is self-indulgence in luxuries and pleasures and indulgences. Uh, Sexual immorality and idolatry. Babylon came to represent all of the worst products of man in his self-made civilization. In the Bible, the very first mention that we hear of Babylon is way back in Genesis. And we find them building the Tower of Babel. Now, the Hebrews saw the word Babel as meaning confusion, but before the Hebrews, it was understood to mean gateway to the gods. And that's exactly what they are trying to do at Babel. They were building this tower. Their building technology had progressed, so it was so much more advanced than anybody else's building technology. While everybody else was still using mud bricks, just just mud mixed with with straw and stuff, these guys were using bricks that had been baked in an oven to make them strong. And they were using mortar made out of tar to hold things together, bitumen. And they were making this tower, they were building for themselves this tower for their glory and to make a name for themselves. Their aim was they wanted to ascend to the position of God and to make a name for themselves. And so God wasn't going to let that happen. And so he confused their language so that they couldn't understand any, uh, each other anymore. You can imagine what it would be like, wouldn't you? The, the engineers there saying, right, oh, well, they put this course of bricks here and, and these others here. And saying, yeah, what? You're going crazy. And they just, couldn't, they just couldn't understand each other anymore. And so they spread across the earth. And the building project came to an end. But because of its location, Babylon eventually rose to power again. In fact, King Nebuchadnezzar, under his reign, Babylon became a world superpower. They even knocked the Assyrians off their perch. In our men's Bible study at the moment, we've been studying the book of Daniel. And King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, well, he was a man filled with pride in his wealth and his majesty and his achievements. And there's a number of stories where he'd set up images to himself that people had to bow down and worship. But King Nebuchadnezzar was learning that, no, no, he's not the one to be worshipped. But the story where it really came to a crunch for King Nebuchadnezzar was one day he's walking on the rooftop of his palace in Babylon and he says this, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Whereas Nebuchadnezzar had done nothing of the sort. God had put him in that position. 
Whenever anyone rises to power, whenever a nation rises to power, it's not their glory or their majesty or their strength that's doing it. It's God allowing it to happen or doing it for a reason. And so God humiliated Nebuchadnezzar by sending him insane. And Nebuchadnezzar lived as a wild animal eating grass until finally he lifted his eyes up to heaven and gave glory to God. But then after Nebuchadnezzar's death, his son, King Belshazzar, ascended to the throne. And you'd think the son would have learnt the lessons from his father, but no. King Belshazzar was just as proud as King Nebuchadnezzar. One night, he threw a great feast for a thousand of his lords and showing off, he ordered that the gold and the silver vessels that had been plundered from God's temple in Jerusalem should be brought in so that they can drink from them and get drunk out of them. And they did. And Daniel chapter 5 says, Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's colour changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Well, why wouldn't they? I mean, I think if I was in my lounge room and and all of a sudden the fingers of a human hand appeared and started writing on the plaster of my lounge room wall, I think my knees would be knocking together. I mean, I've told my kids, never write on the lounge room floor, on the wall. Then they know they'll get a jolly good flogging if they ever do. But what am I going to do if the hand of God starts writing on the wall? I think I'd be terrified. And when Daniel interpreted the words that had been written, he said, the writing's on the wall, fella. Uh, By the way, he didn't actually use those words, but you know that's where that saying comes from. The writing's on the wall. It should be clear for you. It's all over. This is what Daniel actually said. O king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples and nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, And his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly. He was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a wild beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over them who he will. And yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you've praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honoured. The writing was on the wall for King Belshazzar and he didn't survive to see the morning. And the kingdom was stripped away. And so, biblically, 
Babylon comes to represent godless, arrogant civilization wherever we may see it. The Old Testament prophets spoke a lot about Babylon. Uh, let me just read a little bit to you from Isaiah chapter 47. Um, God used Babylon to discipline Israel. Um, but Babylon, they overdid it. They went beyond the bounds of, of what God had set for them. And they were boastful that they had made many widows out of Israel and they'd killed many children. Isaiah 47 says this, Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am, and there's no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. The height of arrogance of godless civilization. That's what Babylon represents. It claims, I am, there is none besides me. Whereas that's God's claim. God is the great I am. There is no one besides God. And many nations and many civilizations have risen. Even superpowers rise and fall. They can crash in a day. Babylon today is modern humanism where man sets himself up as the highest authority. It's the arrogance of power. It's the arrogance of the self-sufficiency of wealth. It's the greed of commerce. It's the opulence of luxurious lifestyles. The Jews and, and, and the early Christians used to call Rome Babylon because that's what Rome represented. Rome was everything that Babylon held dear. What about today? Where is Babylon today? Well, there is a literal Babylon. Um, its ruins still exist in Iraq. In fact, Saddam Hussein began to rebuild it and, and stamped into some of the bricks as an example of his human arrogance. Uh, near National Geographic says this, Inconvenient historical realities have never discouraged rulers from reshaping the history of Babylon in their own image and generating new myths in the process. One of the most brazen examples is not from antiquity, but from the 1980s, when Saddam Hussein, then dictator of Iraq, set out to recreate, sorry, to create a reconstruction of its royal palace. Like his predecessors, he left behind inscriptions on his building projects. On some of the bricks, Hussein had inscribed in Arabic, built by Saddam, son of Nebuchadnezzar, to glorify Iraq. Where is Saddam today? The arrogance of powerful civilization 
and yet it can fall in a day. And, and this is a little bit telling for me. I, I sort of realised as I was writing this that uh, some of our younger ones probably have no idea who S Saddam Hussein actually is. Well, he was the ruler of Iraq and he invaded Kuwait wanting to make his kingdom bigger. Um, but of course, because probably because oil was involved so much, uh, we, the, the Western nations stepped in. And Saddam was conquered. He was eventually tried by his people and they hanged him. But where is Babylon today? Is it just these ruins? No. Babylon is a symbol. So we've got a symbol of a symbol. So we had the, the woman, this great prostitute, as a symbol of a city, the city of Babylon, but the city of Babylon is a symbol of something else. The arrogance of powerful civilization. It's a symbol more than it is a physical location. It's the center of power. It's the center of influence. It's the center of finance. Babylon is Canberra and Sydney. It's New York and Washington. On Tuesday the 11th of September 2001, we saw the fall of Babylon when the World Trade Center collapsed and, and yet Babylon is still strong in the world today, on Wall Street even. Babylon is London and Paris. It's Moscow and Berlin. It's Tokyo and Beijing. Babylon is the EEC and it's the World Bank. Babylon met in Germany a few weeks ago as the G20. You can find Babylon as the community of mansions in the canals of the Gold Coast. Babylon is the Grand Central Shopping Centre in, in Toowoomba. And the Ferrari showroom in Brisbane. Does, does Brisbane have a Ferrari showroom? I don't know. If it does, that's where it would be. Um, and... Uh, so Babylon is anywhere where the greed and luxury of world trade and economic extravagance of a godless world is expressed. And so it occurred to me that a more scary development, uh, something that was not even possible a couple of decades ago, is all of the wealth and trappings and the luxuries of the marketplace, all of the indulgences of every twisted sexual perversion, your own stockbroking centre, your own bank branch is not only on your computer at home, it's on your mobile telephone in your pocket. Babylon can go with you wherever you go. Technology and the World Wide Web has made Babylon a worldwide phenomenon. Babylon is a symbol of the arrogance and extravagance and the indulgence of man in godless, arrogant civilization. Are you starting to feel you might be living in Babylon? Does anyone think they're living in Babylon? A few nods and a couple of small hands. You know, that's okay. It's okay to live in Babylon. If this is where God has put you, it's okay to live in Babylon. But just like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who were literally living in the literal Babylon, our task as Christians is to not live as Babylonians. Our task as Christians is to live as disciples of Jesus while we're living in Babylon. What do I mean by that? Well, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, we are called in many ways to live counter to the culture in which we live. 
And our culture has been teaching us right from childhood how to be good little Babylonians. Uh, I remember how at school I used to feel a little bit left out. Each week as I went to school, um, there was a banking day where half the class would bring along their Commonwealth bank books along with $5 or $10 to deposit for the week. And the teacher would collect all this and, and a representative from the bank would, would pick it up from the classroom. And, but I couldn't participate in this because my family didn't bank with the Commonwealth Bank, we banked with the National Bank. And, um, and I couldn't afford, I wasn't getting five or $10 a week and it looked a bit silly bringing $1 a week to put into my bank book anyway. You see, we were being taught how to be good little Babylonians. Uh, we were saving up our wealth. I don't think they do that anymore today. Do they have bank day anymore, Lauren? No, definitely not. See, Babylon has progressed. So, Austin Pats has a banking day. Oh, cool. Oh, I don't I, I know if that's the right word. I don't know. Oh, there you go. Right. Uh, now, Babylon has progressed, you see. Today, kids are being taught that they don't even need to save because Babylon is so rich. Babylon will look after you even if you don't have any money. Uh, did you know in the 2016-2017 budget, by far the biggest spending item of our federal government was social security and welfare? Now, I knew that, but as I actually looked it up to check that it was right before I told you, I discovered something I didn't know. More than three quarters of what our government brought in from income tax went straight back out again in social security and welfare payments. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing for us to look after the most poorest people in our society, but a country cannot afford to do this unless that country is Babylon. And this is why in every election campaign, you and I have to suffer hearing the government of the day and the opposition of the day, each trying to convince us that they have the very best economic credentials. Who do you trust with, your, with our economy? They keep on asking us. You can't trust this person with our economy, but you can trust us, can't you? And it seems like no matter what the issue is, as long as the economy is good, it's going to fix everything. It's like the Adani coal mine is coming to Queensland. Yes, we'll give you all sorts of discounts. You won't even have to pay royalties for the first year or two. And even though you're one of the most wealthy families in, on the face of the earth, we Australians, yes, we might loan you some money because you need money to get your coal mine up and running. Because as soon as we get the money circulating around our economy, everything's going to be better because we live in Babylon. And we're being taught to need the extravagance and the opulence and the luxuries that Babylon has to offer. The massive salaries attracted by CEOs of corporations, the millions earned by corporate accountancy firms and lawyers. And it's not only white collar workers, think about the ridiculous wages earned by tradesmen and machinery operators during the mining boom. But no matter how much we earn, Babylon will make sure that we always need more. Uh, during the mining boom, uh, places like Rockhampton, Mackay, Gladstone and Perth, Harley-Davidson sales skyrocketed because they could afford them. We need a Harley, along, of course, with boats and flash four-wheel drives. But when the mining boom came to an end, many of these blue-collar workers had gotten used to the extravagance of a mining paycheck 
And rather than saving money, they'd actually borrowed more and more money to, to fuel their Babylonian lifestyle, and they were financially committed. And, and no ma- matter how much they could earn at a normal job, they could never meet their financial repayments. You see, no matter how much we have, Babylon always helps us to want more. When I was working at the Ag College, a number of my fellow workers became good little Babylonians by borrowing against their home to buy eight or ten other houses because that's the way they were going to get rich. We're all told by our financial advisors how to be good Babylonians by putting away more and more money into superannuation because we all know that we need those little luxuries and those world trips when we retire. And of course, now we can spend the quick kids' inheritance. We can now have this thing called a reverse mortgage where we can draw down the value of our home to make sure the kids get nothing and we can spend it all on ourselves. Even the job market is a breeding ground for narcissists. Most recruitment processes these days don't work on demonstrated merit, they work on how well you can sell yourself. As long as you can write a good sales pitch on how good you are and address the key selection criteria, and as long as you can sell yourself really well at an interview, you are much, much more likely to get the job than if you humbly apply and, and let the evidence of your past work speak for itself. A narcissist can always sell himself really well because that's what a narcissist does. This is what we are being conditioned for because we live in Babylon. But as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are called in many ways to live counter to our culture. Our culture has been teaching us how to be good little Babylonians. Even the prosperity theology, which is so popular in the Western church today, is teaching us how to be good little Babylonians. It's teaching us God wants you to be rich. God wants to, you to always feel like you're the most blessed person in the world. It's not teaching us how to be good disciples of Jesus. Jesus is calling us to live counter to the culture. To live counter to the culture of arrogant, godless civilization, along with all of its luxuries, opulence, and power. So, what's so wrong with Babylon? Well, firstly, it's a society that rejects God. It rejects God because it doesn't need God. The wealth and the power of its civilization has with it a sense of self-sufficiency. We don't need anything greater than ourselves. God was something that people used to need. We don't need God anymore. And so secondly, Babylonians elevate themselves to the place of God. Babylon becomes a society of narcissists and hedonists, people who feel that they're the most important people in the whole wide world and no pleasure in life is undeserved by them. They've earned it. Thirdly, once a civilization reaches this stage, the laws become blurred. When civilization first gets going, its greatest gift to its subjects is the role that God has given it, law and order. 
Right? Don't ever for a minute believe that civilization isn't a gift of God. It is. Civilization is a gift of God because through civilization we have law and order. But when civilization begins to reject God, it very quickly begins to question, well, what about God's laws? If there is no good God, what makes there an absolute right or an absolute wrong? There is no moral basis anymore for the laws or for morality itself. You might find yourself shaking your head in, in, in wonder, why is there such a big push at the moment for same-sex marriage? Why did I read in the news only two weeks ago that a Canadian transgender parent won a court case to allow its baby to be given an unassigned gender on its birth certificate so that when that child gets older, it can decide for itself whether it's a boy or whether it's a girl. The court allowed that. What's going on? Where does this stuff come from? It comes from living in Babylon. When a civilization rejects God, to that civilization there is no right. There is no wrong. There is no morality. Fourthly, the arrogance of godless civilization tramples the world's poor and takes advantage of the world's weak. If our wages are growing and growing and growing so that we can afford more and more and more, how can this be sustained? Surely products are going to outprice themselves. Why can't, if our wages are going up, aren't the prices of products going to go up at the same rate? Well, this is why when I was a boy, everything was made in Japan. Because anything that was made in Japan was cheap rubbish. But not anymore. If you buy something from Japan today, it's high quality, top-notch engineering. It's, and it's expensive. And so as Japan got it on its feet, everything then was made in Taiwan because Taiwan was cheap. But guess what? Taiwan started getting their act into gear and it was too expensive. So we then started buying from China and India. And everything was made in China and India because that was where it was really cheap. We import workers to do all of the mundane and low-paying jobs that we don't want to do. Um, our visitors here from the US, you've probably got a lot of Mexicans to do the jobs that nobody else wants to do. Here in Australia, we have Pacific Islanders. They come and do the work that nobody else wants to do. Most of our consumer devices today are made in China, where factory workers earn about $3 an hour, as opposed to our minimum Australian wage of $18.29 an hour, plus 9.5% superannuation. Just this morning, when I read the news, um, there was a story there on Myanmar. Is that how you say it? It's what we know as Burma, anyway. And, um, and it's telling us there now textile industries have shifted from Bangladesh and China because it was getting too expensive at $3 an hour, and it's all right at Myanmar. They can do it for $3 a day. And that's uh, the actual article there this very morning was talking about how these people just don't have enough to live on with $3 a week. $3.80 or something, I think it says. Australian men go on sex tours in places like Thailand and the Philippines where sex is cheap and the girls are young 
and they'll do anything for money. Babylon tramples the world's poor and takes advantage of the world's weak. And fifthly, the arrogance of godless civilization persecutes the disciples of Jesus. Because not only do disciples of Jesus live counter to this culture, but the gospel that we preach tells the arrogant and the godless that there is a God and that this God, this one whom they reject, is the one to whom they will have to give an account. And the word of the Lord to Babylon is repent. Repent of your godlessness and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your arrogance and embrace humility. Repent of your extravagant lifestyle and live simply so everyone else can simply live. Repent of your wealth and give to the poor. Repent of your injustices and do what is right. Repent of your immorality and live a life which is pure and holy to God. This is what it means to live counter to the culture. We live in Babylon, a centre of godless, arrogant civilization. There's nothing we can do about that. But the question for us is, are we living as disciples of Jesus or are we living as Babylonians? One day Babylon will fall. It always does. Babylon has risen and Babylon has fallen simply to be rebuilt somewhere else. But one day Babylon will fall and it'll never be rebuilt ever again. And that's what we're going to be talking about next time we, next time I speak in a few weeks' time. But for us today, as we go out these doors, be very aware that you are entering Babylon. And Babylon is a place where Christians are aliens. We don't belong. We will do things very differently. The things that Babylon do should make our heart grieve. The ways of Babylon might be enticing to us, but they are things that we should resist. In Babylon, be a disciple of Jesus, not a Babylonian. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we want to thank you for your word that tells us that Babylon will fall. And when Babylon collapses, that's going to be a time of great mourning for the people of Babylon. But Lord, for, for your people, this is exactly what we pray for. We pray, come Lord Jesus, and we know that this won't happen until Babylon collapses. Lord, I pray that you would guard our hearts and our minds. Lord, that we would be your children rather than children of Babylon. That we would give us the strength to be able to live counter to the culture that is so strong around us. And Lord, Lord give us the endurance to not only live as disciples of Jesus, to not only live counter to the culture, 
but to be your voice calling Babylon to repentance. Calling our neighbour to repent of Babylonian ways and to yield to the Lord Jesus Christ. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.